everyone and welcome to Crush Course, the podcast for the wine curious. I'm your host, Sarah, coming to you from Sonoma Valley, California, and this week we are revisiting sensory science. Last time we talked about the step-by-step protocol of how to taste and describe wine, but how can you tell if you just don't like a wine or if it has some sort of issue? That's what we are going to find out today. So, let's get to it, shall we? First things first, what is a faulty wine? Well, it is a wine that has experienced some sort of chemical or microbiological reaction that has changed its sensory character to be something other than what was intended. You may also hear people say that a wine has gone bad, almost like it's spoiled or gone past its prime. For this episode, I will be specifically referring to these wines as faulty. The term bad can be a little bit vague, and in my personal vocabulary, bad wines are ones that were poorly produced and aren't good from the get-go. Chances are, in your drinking lifespan, you have consumed a faulty wine. Now before you go running to the doctor, don't worry. All of these potential wine faults are not harmful to consumers in any way, but most people do not know what wine faults are or how to identify them. So they drink their wine, thinking it's supposed to taste like that, and go on with their day. While we won't cover all possible wine faults in today's episode, that would be quite a list, I wanted to talk about the most common ones, how to identify them, and if possible, how to save the bottle. So the first one on deck is the dreaded cork taint. You may have heard people say that a wine is corked. Well, no duh, you pulled the cork out of the bottle yourself. When a wine is corked, this means that the wine has been contaminated with a pesky chemical compound called trichloroanisole, or TCA. This compound is most commonly found in corks, hence the name cork taint. But it can be introduced at other parts of the production process. TCA, or cork taint, is pretty easy to identify because of its smell. The wine will be void of all fruity aromas, and instead will smell like wet newspaper, wet dog, or moldy cardboard. If you smell a wine and it immediately transports you to a dank, dark basement, there's a good chance it has cork taint. The cool and or funny thing about cork taint is that some people are super sensitive to it. When I worked at a tasting room in Sonoma, we knew which ones of us on the team were more sensitive to it. And so if there was ever a bottle that seemed just a bit off, we would have them sniff it out like a enological bloodhound. While everyone can smell it, I mean, how can you miss wet dog? It may take higher concentrations to be noticeable to some people. Luckily, if you're trying to impress and you open a bottle that is cork tainted, you may have a quick solution in your kitchen drawer. A polyethylene film or saran wrap has been shown to absorb haloanisols, aka TCA. Simply submerge the saran wrap in a decanter, and after a bit of time, the TCA should be significantly reduced. The bad news, other fruity esters are also known to be absorbed by the plastic film as well. But in many consumer studies, the outcome was more than helpful for a quick fix. Side note, the ability of wine to react with its environment i.e. certain plastics, is more than enough reason to be a stickler for drinking out of glassware. 
it's inert and most likely will allow you to enjoy the wine as it's meant to be. Quick side note before we go on, because wine is essentially an evolving variable product, most wine shops are super understanding when it comes to returning wine due to wine faults. For instance, and again, no, I am not sponsored by them, Trader Joe's will actually take back any bottle if you've opened it and found it to have some sort of wine fault. When in doubt, save the bottle and bring it back to the shop and explain what you smelled or tasted that made you think the wine was off. They may replace the bottle, or if it's no longer available, suggest another. Similarly, if you bought wine directly from a winery, don't hesitate to send back a corked bottle. Most winemakers will actually send it to a lab to have it tested, and many cork producers have guaranteed that they will reimburse the winery for the cost of the bottle if their product is the one that caused contamination. It's better to know that there's an issue, and the goal is to give every consumer a great experience. Cork taint is pretty common, but the number one wine fault you will likely encounter is oxidation. So, a quick chemistry lesson. When a wine is oxidized, or exposed to air, it changes the chemical composition of the wine, affecting the color, the aromatics, and the flavors. Oxidized wines will have more of a dusty orange tone to them, and it will have more of a vinegar-esque aroma and flavor to it. To me, oxidized wines actually smell dusty. Oxidation can happen when the bottle closure has an issue and lets in too much oxygen, or if a bottle has been opened and left undrunk for too long. The latter issue is pretty simple to fix. Either save bottles for when you know you will be able to finish them in a single sitting, or invest in some sort of wine saver spray. You can find this at most wine shops or specialty food stores. It's a can of compressed gas that you will actually spritz into the bottle before corking it. The gas will force out any oxygen in the bottle and will act almost like a protective barrier on the wine, keeping it fresh until the next time you open it. Although I will point out that this won't keep the wine forever. I would say at best it gives you an extra day or two. The former issue, if the wine is oxidized due to a poor closure, isn't fixable. Like I said, you can take the bottle back to where you purchased it and explain the issue. I do want to quickly talk about the effects of oxygen on wine, because not all oxygen is bad. In fact, it is absolutely necessary for aging a wine. You see, the cork in the bottle doesn't seal off the wine, not entirely. Cork is semi-permeable, which means that it's not completely solid, and it actually lets oxygen into the wine slowly over time. As the wine ages, the tannins will soften, new aromatics will develop, creating an entirely new and fascinating creature. Think of oxygen almost like salt for wine. It's best to add a little dash at each step of the recipe, like an aging, rather than pouring it all in at once, like oxidation. And for decanting, this is kind of like putting that extra dash on just before you serve the dish. Hashtag salt bay. Next up is the issue with sulfur compounds. Now remember, we do use sulfur dioxide in winemaking to stabilize wine and eliminate unwanted microbes that could interfere with the fermentation or aging process. However, the sulfur we add will never be in such high concentration that they should ever be noticeable when you smell a wine. Some sulfur compounds can be produced by the yeast themselves if they're stressed during fermentation. 
The sulfur compounds that we really need to worry about are these pesky little fellows called mercaptans, also known as sulfhydryls and thiols. These are all the same compound, however, thiols are often considered to have a more desirable grapefruit or hoppy aroma, like in beer, whereas mercaptans are given cruciferous and rotten descriptors. These compounds are named after their SH bond. The most common one is H2S, or hydrogen sulfide, but there are quite a few out there. In contrast with our previous issue with having too much oxygen in a wine, mercaptans often form when there isn't enough oxygen present, or the wine has been reduced. Reduction in the wine presents as very pungent aromas of rotten egg, skunk, lit matches, flatulence, and cooked cabbage. Thankfully, these aromas usually blow off, essentially floating out of the wine matrix with a little bit of decanting. This will help to incorporate some much-needed oxygen into the wine, pushing out those funky aromas. This may take about 15 to 20 minutes for this to happen, but if that doesn't work, it just may be too far gone. Reduction in bottled wines is often linked again to closure. For instance, screw caps and synthetic corks have the highest occurrence of these, and it's often more of a problem for younger wines. Many screw cap producers are laser etching their products to allow for different oxygen transmission rates to help counteract reduction in screw cap wines. Still an area of active research and development, but hopefully we can see some good results from this. So we now know if wine has too much or too little oxygen, it can create a wine fault. But what about when the yeast are still working? Sometimes in still wines, we find that the fermentation isn't fully finished when we bottle. When we open it, there may be a fizz and little bubbles start to rise to the surface. When you take a sip, the wine will definitely have some carbonation to it and sort of a bite. And it may even have a bit of a yeasty, bready smell to it too. More often than not, this happens in lower intervention winemaking, where little or no sulfur or filtration is used to stabilize the wine before we bottle. Just means that there was a little sugar left in the wine, and the yeasty boys just couldn't help themselves. A quick Google search should tell you if this was intentional or a simple mishap. If the wine was not meant to be sparkling, throw it in a decanter and swirl to release the bubbles. Then you're all set. Then there's the damage category. No, I don't mean that the bottle is physically broken, although we don't want that either. This is the group of wine faults that are caused by light or heat exposure. Rather than something inside the bottle changing the wine, it's an exterior source. Heat damage occurs when wine is left in too hot temperatures for an extended period of time. So if you're out wine tasting in a California summer, and you leave the wine you've purchased throughout the day in the car while you taste, you may be putting your precious bottles in jeopardy. Similarly, if you don't store your bottles in a cool, controlled climate, this could also lead to heat damage. This is why many winos invest in a wine fridge to keep their bottles at a crisp 55 degrees Fahrenheit. Cooked wines are pretty easy to spot, sometimes even before you open the bottle. Because the temperature of the bottle has increased, gases within it will expand, oftentimes pushing the cork out of the bottle before you break out the corkscrew. When it's in the glass, cooked wines will often have a sugared, cooked fruit kind of smell to it, almost like a mulled wine, but without the spices. You might also notice some changes in color due to oxidation, which is also a common sign of heat damage. 
light damage is not one that most people consider. But have you ever wondered why some lighter beers come in green bottles? Well, it's to mitigate light damage. Light damage in wine is most common in light wines such as Pinot Grigio and Sauvignon Blanc. And just like those lighter beers, can present these musty, woolly, and kind of skunky aromatics if exposed to sunlight for too long. Some winemakers choose to bottle their white wines in tinted glass. Sparkling wine is typically bottled in green glass to help prevent light damage. But the best thing to do is to not store your wines near a window. All in all, the best way to store your wine at home is a central, cool location with minimal sunlight to avoid heat and light damage. Once the wine is damaged, there's no going back. There's one more category I wanted to touch on that is sort of a wine fault, and that is microbial taint. Yeast isn't the only thing living in wine. There are plenty of other little guys floating around in there that can alter the wine, usually for the worst. The most common examples of microbial taint are Brettanomyces, mousiness, and ropiness, which smell like a barnyard, band-aid, or hay bale, all of which come from these wild microbes that may not have been eradicated by sulfur. In the same category, acetic acid and ethyl acetate make up volatile acidity, or VA, and are linked to these microbes that are so aptly named acetobacter. Some may argue, though, that microbial influence is not a taint at all, but an added layer of character to the wine. Whereas oxygen is salt, these additional, dare I say unconventional, aromatics can be seen as spices. Good in a pinch, but should never overwhelm the wine. Sometimes, these microbial faults are consistently seen from vintage to vintage for a producer, especially old world cellars, which have been around for centuries. And it opens up the debate of if it's a flaw or terroir, intention or mistake. It's both subjective and objective, and that's part of what makes wine so interesting. So you see, wine faults are really nobody's fault. I think a lot of people think of wine as this stable, unchanging beverage that will always taste the same. But it's not. It has the potential to change and evolve within the bottle, sometimes for better, sometimes for worse. Knowing how to identify when it's for worse will save you plenty of time and unpleasant glasses of wine. Life's too short to drink faulty wine, and it's too short to drink bad wine too, but that is a rant for another day. It's time for another wine of the week. My boyfriend and I are best friends with another couple here in Sonoma, and we have dinner with them usually around once a week. The night usually consists of catching up on our weeks, Mexican takeout, wine, board games, and lots of laughter. One of our friends is not particularly keen on white wines, although I have now vowed to help her find white wines she will enjoy. But as a standard practice, I always bring a bottle of red wine to the table. A few weeks ago, I cracked open a tasty little bottle from Trader Joe's. This bottle was the Surrey Veneto Cecilia Barretta. This was something I had never had before, but I was familiar with the Italian appassimento style, which basically means that the grapes were partially dried before being fermented. What this does is concentrate the sugars, making for a rich, still slightly sweet red wine. It was actually a great choice for a spicier meal like Mexican food. When eating spicier food, you want to balance it out with a bit of sweetness really makes the food and the wine show off new aromas and flavors when combined. 
This was from Trader Joe's and was less than $10. I would definitely add it to the wine list if you were starting to shop for Thanksgiving. Speaking of Thanksgiving, next week, we are going to be talking about one of my favorite wines for Thanksgiving, Beaujolais. This humble grape from the French countryside has a long and delicious history and is quickly becoming one of the trendiest grapes out there. It even has its own holiday, and I mean, how cool is that? I'm Sarah, and this has been your crush course on common wine faults. Until next time, cheers! <laughs>